Tonight I want to take one more look at the way God uses the olive tree to teach us something about who He is and what He's up to um, all throughout history. But some of the things you're going to see uh, as, as significant even in what He's doing in the current times, in the current days. And so go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. And while you're turning there, let me go ahead and give you tonight's uh, takeaway. If you're taking notes, if you're writing things down, go ahead and write this down. This is the thing that I hope you will walk out of here with, that you'll be encouraged with, that you will meditate on uh, this week, weeks to come. And that is this. Write this down. God will always finish what He starts. Now, some of you are writing that down. I see you writing that down. Even as you're writing it down, there may be a particular verse of Scripture that comes to your mind. Yeah, Philippians 1.6. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Uh, my, all my kids know this one. Even Emma Kate is working on it, though it's a little, it's a little rough. But all uh, the three boys know it. And uh, it was the, one of the first, maybe even the first scripture that we taught to them to memorize. And when we memorize scripture, uh, most of the time we do it to, to a rap. Would you like me to show you how we did that? To, or Aiden, would you like to show them? He said, no, and I'm, I'm not going to do that. Well, first of all, we get jiggy. And we kind of start popping around the house. No, we don't. Actually, we do, but we're not going to do that right now. It just goes, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. You want to try it with me? He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Until the day of Christ Jesus. Now, I'd moonwalk right now if I had the shoes and the floor for it. I would do it right now. But I don't, so I won't. Um, so this is the first verse that we had, one of the first verses, if not the first verse, that we had our boys memorize, our kids memorize. And the reason is, is because this is my life verse. Some of you have life verses. You've heard of people that have a life verse. That means that's the go-to verse for me when I'm not on top of my game spiritually. Anybody ever not on top of the game spiritually? There's times when I'm not quite where I need to be. I'm not, and not only am I not hitting home runs, I'm not hitting triples. I'm not hitting doubles. I'm not even hitting singles. I'm not even walking. I'm just striking out. When that's happening, especially on a consistent basis, you start feeling like junk. You start feeling like a failure. And so whenever I feel like a failure, this is a go-to scripture for me. This is a scripture I cling to. When the enemy comes in and says, look at where you're at. Surely God is done with you. Well, that's whenever I cling to Philippians 1.6. This is the scripture that brings me hope. This is the one that inspires me to persevere. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it is the verse that gets me back in the game. And I think there's a lot of people that feel the same way about that verse. And, and maybe it's someone else's life verse in here. I don't know. You think about what it's saying, and it's, it's an incredible truth. It's an amazing promise. Amen? Well, let me ask you a question. I don't know if you ever thought about this. But when did Philippians 1.6 become true? When did this become a promise for us? When did this become a promise that we can count on? When did this become a, a verse that we could quote to um, knock the enemy on his tail? When did that happen? Did it happen 60 years after Christ's resurrection when Paul was putting it to pen, writing the Philippians? The church at Philippi, is that when that became a truth? Is that when that became a reality? Or could it be that Paul was just poetically repackaging a truth 
about God and his character that has existed from the very beginning of time? I think we need to answer that question before we dive into Romans 11. Is God always faithful to finish the good work that he himself starts? What say you? (laughs) Yes or no? Some of you are like, no. But I think you're just messing around. Yes, of course he does. Deuteronomy 7. The Lord, your God, he is God. The faithful God who keeps his covenants and his loving kindness to a thousandth generation. I was thinking about this, how typically in Scripture, I've heard this before, that a generation represents about how many years? Anybody know that? About 40 years. And so if it's a thousandth faithful to a thousandth generation, like how many years is that? It'd be 40,000 years. Think about it. This is a promise. These are promises. His covenants and his loving kindness to a thousandth generation with those who loves him and keeps his commandments. And there's more to that verse, and we might look at it tonight. Um, what I want us to do is look at Romans 11. So go ahead and turn there and start. And we'll start in verse 17. Remember, we're talking about the olive tree. One of the things we talked about is that olive trees are tough. If you were here a couple weeks ago, you know I talked about that, about how they'll grow in places where other plants, other types of trees won't grow. They actually are most productive in rocky, unproductive soil. In fact, I want you to write this down. The olive tree thrives in the struggle. And here's what I felt like the Lord was saying to someone in here, and I'm just going to read it, that you are not supposed to survive the struggle, but that God has made it possible through the work of the cross, through the power of his resurrection, and through the comfort and counsel of the Holy Spirit. You are to thrive in the struggle. And something else I felt like the Lord was saying is that it is the struggle, listen to me close, it is the struggle that gives an olive tree its character. Can we put that picture up there? Each tree, because of the elements, whether it's wind or whether it's rain or whether it's fire or whatever it is, because of the elements, it has its own unique look. And even though it has a twisted, gnarly trunk, it has bright green leaves and fruit on top. And I just felt like the Lord was saying, for someone in here, maybe all of us, be careful that you don't despise what God has allowed in your life. Own the struggles that God has offered you. Your life is beautiful. I wrote it down because I wanted to say it just like I felt like the Lord showed it to me. You think it's twisted and gnarly, but it's actually a testimony of God's ability to bring something pleasant out of the unpleasant. Okay? So, whoever that's for, God bless you. So, what was I talking about? Olive trees are tough. So, olive trees are tough. Drought won't kill them. Disease won't kill them. Fire won't kill them. They just live on and on and on and on. A couple of things I told you last week, or two weeks ago, rather, is that there are several, several trees in the Garden of Gethsemane, which was on the Mount of Olives. This is the garden that Jesus went and prayed The night before he was crucified, he went and prayed. Several trees in the garden are claimed to date back to the time when Jesus prayed there. So that would be roughly how many years? 2,000 years. And that's not the only one. There's seven trees in the area of Galilee that are estimated to be 3,000 plus years old. And what's crazy is that all seven trees still produce fruit. 
There's an olive tree in Algarve, Portugal that's 2,000 plus years old. There's an olive tree in Bar, Montenegro that is claimed to be over 2,000 years old. There's an olive tree on the Isle of Brioni, Istria in Croatia that has been calculated to be about 1,600 years old and it still produces 66 pounds of fruit, olives, per year. And see, in that oil, that, uh, all, those olives are actually used to make some of the best oil in that area. Uh, there's a town in Lebanon, I can't pronounce it so I won't say it, that claims to have the oldest olive trees in the world. And I think I told you this a couple weeks ago, that one of them is claimed to be 4, 000, from 4,000 B.C. Isn't that crazy? They just go on, they're tough, they go on and on and on. And I want to read this to you, because this is a quote, I want to get it right. When an olive tree gets really old, often hundreds of years old, and has reached its maximum production, farmers usually cut it down to improve its future growth. Soon, new shoots grow from the old stump, and the tree begins producing olives again. And the reason that you can do this to an olive tree so what I read, and I quote, is because its root system is strong and healthy and capable of regenerating the tree, even if the above-ground structure is destroyed. Now, I want you to keep this in mind as we read a little bit of Romans 11, okay? And we're going to start down in 17, and let me just say this. We are starting in the middle of a chapter <laughs> that's in the middle of a book or a letter that is filled with theological truth, filled with the story of redemption. Okay, let's read what it says where we're coming in. Verse 17. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, being a wild olive, were grafted in among them and became partakers with them of the rich root of the olive tree. So what kind of trees are we talking about? He says, do not be arrogant toward the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, well, the branches were broken so that I might be grafted in. And rightly so. You're right what you say. They were broken off for their unbelief, but you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, though, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Behold, then, the kindness and severity of God to those who fell Severity, but to you, God's kindness, if you continue in his kindness, otherwise you will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. And we'll stop right there for now. I want us to walk out of here with an understanding of what the olive tree is, what the natural branch is, and what the wild olive shoot or the wild olive branch is. Okay, can we do that? When you think about the olive tree, 
I think what he's talking about is what Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 2 as the commonwealth of Israel. He said, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. And he's talking to Gentiles. He says, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. A lot of your scriptures actually may say citizenship, but the word is commonwealth. And and I want to back up because this is really important because people make this more shallow than it is. This word commonwealth, the word, the original word that it comes for means city. The next word, there's another word that can be used to mean citizen of a city. But this word actually means the rights of a citizen. So what he's saying is you are excluded from the rights of citizenship of Israel. And I want to describe what that means. I know this is a little bit heady, but this is important. Do you guys remember all the way back in Genesis 12? Go ahead and turn there if you want to, but I can tell you the story. God chose a man named Abram. He said, Abram, I am going to bless you. I'm going to make you an exceedingly great nation. All the nations of the world will be blessed through you. Your descendants will be as numerous as the stars. All the nations of the earth will be blessed through you, which is a prophetic um, picture of Jesus Christ. All the nations of the earth would come to salvation through the family of Abraham, through the seed of Abraham. All the families of the earth will be blessed. Everyone, now listen to me carefully. This all fits in. Everyone who blesses you will be blessed, but everyone who curses you will be cursed. And then he says, let's cut a covenant to make sure that this thing's going to happen. If you don't know anything about what it means to cut a covenant, can I borrow you, Ken? And can I borrow Aiden? I've, sh- I've done this before in a different teaching, but I think it's important. Some of you may not have ever heard it. I'm going to make a covenant with you, Abraham. And back then that meant something. And when two people make a covenant, what they would do, they would, have, they would go get some animals, they would, maybe their dove, maybe their cows, whatever. They would cut them in half, okay? They would cut these pieces in half and they would stand here. And what they would do is, is they would walk the pieces of this covenant. Keep in mind, God said, I'm going to make this covenant with you. This covenant has to do with the promises. What did they do to the animals? They cut it. So it means it's a what kind of covenant? A blood covenant. Keep that in mind. And so what they would do is they would walk these pieces. And it's very symbolic. They would walk the pieces. Sorry, I'll get this cow a little further out. They would walk these pieces. They would walk through these pieces. And then they would walk this way around the pieces. And they would come back here. And then they would stand together. And what that basically is saying is that we are entering into a covenant together. And even though one of these days we may be separated, it will always be true that because we have a covenant, we will come back together again. Okay, do you understand that? Now this is important because I want you to get that picture. Because the covenant he said was, are to be an everlasting covenant. Now I want you to keep in mind what happens next. Again, we don't have time to read it, but let me tell you. It was time for them to cut the covenant. Abraham, come over here. Abraham, come over here. We're going to cut this covenant. And so Abraham's all right. But then God says, Abraham, go to sleep. And Abraham, it says he went into a deep sleep. And all of a sudden, it says that a smoking oven and a flaming torch appeared. And the smoking oven and the flaming torch passed between the pieces. So God made the promises to Abraham, established the covenant with Abraham, but he didn't walk the pieces with Abraham. And if you get into all the deep stuff of it, you realize that the smoking oven is a picture of God who is our consuming fire. 
And the flaming torch is a picture of Christ. And so what you see there, and this is important for you to get this, is that God said, Abraham, you would never be able to fulfill this everlasting covenant. I'm going to walk the pieces with my son. And so what you see is the commonwealth, going back to the commonwealth of Israel. The promises and the covenant were made with Abraham, but God walked the pieces with his son. And so the commonwealth of Israel, the rights of the citizenship that belong to Israel is the promises and the covenant that God made with him. But the reason they're everlasting is because God walked it with his son. The reason this is important is because look what God says back in Romans 11. If some of the branches were broken off and you being a wild olive were grafted in among them and partakers of them in the rich root of the olive tree. Okay, so there's something going on here. The natural branch that he's talking about is Israel, the original recipients of this promise, the rights of the citizenship. And he said, through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And then what do we see happen? You've probably never heard this before, but what Israel was doing, making atonement for their sins, they weren't just making atonement for their sins. They were literally the act of slaughtering those bulls, putting blood upon the mercy seat. That was literally an, inter- an act of intercession for all the nations. Why? Because that nation was the first fruits of all the nations that he would redeem. So the natural branch is the one who belonged to the original, the, the original cover. They naturally belong into that. But then he says, he talks about the wild olive shoot. By the way, a, a wild olive tree will either produce small fruit, little fruit, or bitter fruit, or no fruit. So I want you to think about this. And, and the um, wild olive shoot is a picture of the Gentiles, everybody who wasn't Jewish. Paul was saying that you have become partakers of the blessing that God made with Israel. And let me just pause and say real, real quick, one of the reasons that we're bringing up is there's this, I believe, a potentially very dangerous idea out there and this is essentially what Paul's getting at, and we're going to read straight through it and break it down. There's, a, I believe, a potentially dangerous mindset. If, if you want to call it a theology, you can. I, well, I guess it would be called a theology, and it's called replacement theology. Some of you may have heard that. Repa- replacement theology, in a nutshell, says any time in the New Testament that you see Israel, it doesn't mean Israel. It means Christians. Jew and Gentile, but it means Christians. And yet you read Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11, which I admit, these three chapters stand out as funny in the middle of this whole book. He's talking about all this stuff about redemption, who we were, the work of Christ. Now uh, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ in chapter 8. And then all of a sudden in chapter 9, he says, he just out of the blue, I'm telling you the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. Why, Paul? For I wish that I myself would be accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Who would his kinsmen, according to the flesh, be? Later on, he says the word Israel. Oh, wait, no, that's talking about Christians. Is that possible? 
Does he change, is he schizo? Is he schizophrenic? Because if he is, the Philippians 1, 6, that he who began a good work in me may not work for me. Amen? He's not schizophrenic. He is on task. But if you look at the end of chapter 8, and he's talking about our victory in Christ, I want you to look what he says. But in all things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us, For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depths, nor any other created things. And he's encouraging the saints here at Rome, the um, the Jews and the Gentile Christians. For I am convinced that neither uh, neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nothing present, nothing in the things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depths, anything created will be able to separate us. Everybody say separate us. From the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. And he's like, ah, people. And then he's like, all of a sudden felt, I believe in the spirit, this burden for his own people. That his own people, the people that were chosen to be a light into the nation, the people who were chosen to be the, the intercessory nation for all the nations, And whose salvation would come from. Remember Jesus told the woman at the well, salvation is from the Jews. Remember that? I think he was burdened. He's saying, the very nation that this is all supposed to be happening to and through doesn't even believe. They're not in a state of believing as as a whole, the nation. There were some Jews, obviously him. And he says, I wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren. My kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites. Spiritual Israelites? Did he change subjects? No, you guys. He's talking about his kinsmen. And he makes it very clear who he's talking about. Israel. And how at their present state are not believing. He said, if some of the branches were broken off, and you being a wild olive were grafted in among them and became partakers with them of the rich root of the olive tree. What is the rich root? What is the rich root of the olive tree? It is salvation. Everything that belongs to us in and through Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is the one that cut the covenant with the Father, not Abraham. He said, you were grafted in among them and became partakers of the rich root of the olive tree. Do not be arrogant towards the branches. I want you to think about that. Do not be arrogant towards the branches. And what branches is he talking about? Israel. Well, that's what they get. They should have believed. God's done with them. So we've got to pause and remember that wonderful truth Paul taught to the Philippians. He who began a good work will be faithful to complete it. When? Until the day of Christ Jesus. Do you know what the day of Christ Jesus is? The day when it's all said and done. That has to do with us. But isn't that truth still apply to Israel? Well, no, it doesn't because, see, Jesus um, did what he did. Whoa, 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 whoa. He did. He did. But just because he did does not mean that God is through with Israel. He's not. Now, I want to walk through that a little bit, and and we're just going to walk through this. I say then, chapter 11, verse 1, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. And he's intense. Dude, look at the exclamation point. May it never be. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. 
God has not rejected his people who he foreknew. In other words, he chose them for this great purpose of bringing their light to the nations. Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah? Now, you've got to pick this up. How he pleaded with God against Israel. You might know the story of when he had it out with the prophets of Baal. Him and Jezebel weren't getting along. You guys remember that whole thing, the whole story? He says, Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have torn down your altars. I am alone. I'm the only one left. And they are also seeking to kill me. But what is the divine response to him? In other words, what did God say to him way back then? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Chill out, dude. There's a remnant that still believes. In the same way then, there has also come to be at this present time. Everybody say this present time. Right here would have been 50 or 60 years after Christ. But this still applies to us because we're in the same season of history. Some call it the church age. In the same way then, there has also come to be at this present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. But it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. In other words, the way Israelites used to come to God through the sacrificial system. What he's talking about here is that there are Jewish people at this present time that have put their faith in Yeshua, Jesus. You guys see that? Fairly large one by this time. He says, what then? What Israel is seeking, it has not attained. But those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. The gospel was presented to these people. And some received it, and some didn't. Just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see, not ears to hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? In other words, is God done with them? They stumbled. They didn't receive. And when he says they, he's talking about the nation as a whole. You guys understand that? You understand that? There have been plenty of Jewish people in the days of Moses, Moses obviously in the days of Elijah, that did not seek God, did not put their faith in him in any sort of way. That's true when Paul's writing, and it's true today. But what he's saying is just because that is true, God is done with Israel? This is what he says. May it never be. But by their transgression, in other words, their rejection of the gospel, salvation has come to the Gentiles, people who aren't Jewish, to make them jealous, to make the Israelites jealous. They should become jealous that we are worshiping their God. Now, if their transgression, their sin, their rejection of the gospel is riches for the whole world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their, their fulfillment be? Some of your translations may say, how much more will their fullness be? In other words, when they believe in Jesus Christ. If, they, if we are this amazingly blessed, while the nation of Israel is in a state of unbelief, the nation as a whole, because there are plenty of people who do believe, right? But if the nation as a whole is in unbelief and we're this blessed, how much more blessed will we be when the nation as a whole receives Jesus as their Messiah? Are you with me? 
But I am speaking to you who are Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? And really what that's saying is, when the nation as a whole accepts Jesus Christ, the end is close. Then he says, if the first piece of dough is holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, the branches are too. If some of the branches were broken off, and you being a wild olive were grafted in among them and became partakers with them of the rich root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant towards the branches. And that's where people are at. And this is why we're talking about this so intensely. There are people in this world, on this earth, that are so intense and arrogant towards the people of Israel and where in their own estimation, he talks about, in their own estimation of where they are in relation to God's plan. They're done. They're out of here. God's through with them. And that's, he's, it, Paul is saying the exact same opposite. And we either believe Paul or we don't. The same Paul that said, He who began a good work and you will be faithful to complete it is the one that wrote this. Amen? True or false? True. Stay with me. Do not be arrogant towards the branches, the natural branches. But if you are arrogant, you need to remember that it's not you who supports the root. <laughs> In other words, you are not the one who can play with like a toy the covenants and promises of God. And I think there's a lot of Christians that treat God's promises, God's covenants, Christ Jesus even, Holy Spirit as a rabbit's foot. And they are just toying around with the things of the Lord. He says you cannot do that. But the root supports you. You will say then, well, the branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. In other words, there's a slight understanding He said, that's true. You're right when you say that. They were broken off because of their unbelief. And you stand, in other words, you are in the um, commonwealth of Israel. You're in the blessings because of your faith. And we know the teaching on faith, okay? So he's not changing his his mind. He's saying that's still true. Do not be conceited, though. I love this. Don't be conceited. Don't be arrogant. Don't be conceited. But fear. Fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, in other words, if he just cut them off because of their disobedience, they're just, he's done with them. Well, he will not spare you either. Whoa. Now pause and think about that. God made an eternal, everlasting covenant with his people Israel, a covenant that would last forever. It contained covenants. It contained promises. It contained um, the Messiah coming from them that would save the whole world. A whole package wrapped up in the promises and covenants he made with them. And he said, it will be unto you an everlasting covenant. Everlasting just means what it says. One that lasts forever, right? And what Paul's saying is, is, listen, don't be arrogant and conceited. If you think, in your wise own estimation of what you think, if you think that God would just cut Israel off after he made those promises to him and he himself walked the pieces with his son. You can't get much more powerful of a covenant than that. Isn't that true? Then what you're also saying is when you fail, even though you have faith in Yeshua, Jesus, who went to the cross and, and solidified that covenant, the new covenant, right? This is, this is my covenant that I make with you. If you're saying that God's done with Israel because of their unbelief or because of their rejection, because they were boneheads 
and they were, then what you're also saying is that when you're a bonehead, he's going to reject you too and cut you off. So the same people that say God's done with Israel, they had their chance. We have replaced them. We are the spiritual Israel. Whoa, 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 whoa. Because if you take it in context, what you're saying is, is the same powerful covenant that God made with them, if it can be that easily broken, then why would the covenant that he made in his own blood be any less or more powerful? But here's the point. God always finishes what he starts. Isn't that right? Let's keep reading, though. Do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Behold, then, the kindness and severity of God. To those who fell, severity. But to you, God's kindness. If you continue in God's kindness, otherwise you will be cut off. And they also, if they do not, and listen, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. And they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, and he's talking about Israel as a nation. How do you qualify the nation coming to Israel? It's hard to know exactly what that means, but maybe it's the leaders. Maybe some very high leaders. Maybe there's a certain number of people that God has in mind, you know, but the nation as a whole declares Yeshua. Yeshua. And they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. If you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, the commonwealth of Israel, the root of Jesse, the olive tree, the blessings, promises, and covenants of God, and produce fruit. Because the whole idea of grafting is kind of unnatural, right? How much more will these, who are the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? Do you guys see that? He says, I do not want you, brothers, to be arrogant of this mystery. I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery. So that you will not be wise in your own estimation. That a partial hardening has happened to Israel. And what that means is there are, in, in every generation since Christ, there are Jews who believe, who have accepted Jesus as their Messiah. And he says, partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. In other words, there's a season of history that God has set apart for Gentiles to believe in Jesus to partake of this covenant. When that season of history is done, then there's going to be a great revival in Israel. In fact, he goes on and says it like this. And so all Israel will be saved. Now, a lot of people misquote that and and have a bad direction in that. They say that every Jewish person is going to be saved. That's not what that's saying. It's saying national Israel will believe in Yeshua. National Israel. Something's going to happen in the government or something where the nation as a whole, it becomes very obvious that there is a revival and that the nation of Israel believes. And when that happens, we're close to the end. Now, here's the deal, and I think Marvin said something about this 
And this is why, you know, not, we don't want to get on a bandwagon with anything. Oh, they're all about Jewish people. Listen, we're about Jewish people. <laughs> because God is about Jewish people. We want to see Jewish people come to know Jesus. Why? Because there's prophecies. There's an end times picture that centers around Israel. We want to reach the, the, the Gentiles. We want to reach the Muslims. We want to reach the Buddhists. We want to reach the Tylerites that don't know Jesus. All of it's part of the fullness, but we also want to reach out to the Jewish, the Jewish people because if we are this stinking blessed while Israel is in a state of unbelief, what is going to happen when they do believe? Paul said it'll be life from the dead. In other words, I think it's the message version that says it'll be a homecoming party because the end will be, will be near. And that gets into a whole other part of eschatology, end time stuff. We can't be arrogant or ignorant about God's heart for Israel. Replacement theology is, is, is hitting us. And I want to say that because I think we're in danger of being really robbed of some blessings, some truth as believers. It's my job to, as best as I can, to teach sound doctrine. And from my own studies, um, everything that we gather as an eldership, we believe that God's not done with Israel. You guys tithe. That money comes in. And from that money that comes in, we tithe back 10% to the nations, to outreach missions. The first check we write when we do that is to MJBI, which is a, um, a Jewish ministry, a Messianic Jewish ministry. And we've done that from the beginning. And I believe the reason that we're able to stand here and tell you how blessed we are financially, spiritually, are fruits of sowing into the Jew first. Do we sow into other areas? Yeah, of course. Paul says, don't be arrogant. Don't be ignorant of this mystery, meaning it's, it's big, it's vast. It's, regardless of how, how much your brain is or isn't wrapped around this thing about I'm to the Jew first, the truth that I said still stands. God will finish what he started in you because he is faithful to complete it. If he started it, he will finish it. Amen.